Continuing our reading through the Gospel of John. If you'd like to follow along, I invite you to take your Bible and turn to John chapter 18. John chapter 18, we'll start in verse 28 and we'll read to the end of the chapter, which is verse 40. Lend your attention, this is the very word of God. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own laws. The Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? After he said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, Not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was an insurrectionist. Mm. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Mm. You can turn to the Old Testament the book of Micah. We enter now the second cycle of oracles from the prophet Micah. The first cycle brought to an end at the close of chapter 2, the beautiful vision of salvation, the God who gathers the great shepherd who will take unto himself the flock scattered the world over. And now Micah plunges back into the fray, uh, dealing with sinful hearts and laboring to get them to see the true nature of sin. So we'll read verses 1 through 4. This is the word of God. 
And I said, Hear, you heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel. Is it not for you to know justice? You who hate the good and love the evil, who tear the skin from off my people and their flesh from off their bones, who eat the flesh of my people and flay their skin from off them and break their bones in pieces and chop them up like meat in a pot, like flesh in a cauldron. Then they will cry to the Lord, but he will not answer them. He will hide his face from them at that time because they have made their deeds evil. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Join me in prayer. Our great God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we ask that you would bless your word unto us this morning. How grateful we are that you have spoken, that you are not silent. How grateful we are that the eternal word in the fullness of time became man and made the riches known of who you are, O great God. And even now the Spirit ministers attending the reading and the preaching of the word. And so we ask this great blessing. For left to ourselves, we cannot understand. Not truly. Left to ourselves, we hear just sounds. But by the ministry of the Spirit, life comes forth. The wandering are retrieved. True understanding dawns. And Christ is glorified as the great shepherd, as our Savior, as our Lord, as our King, as our God. Do these things even now, for we ask in Christ's name, amen. I come from a long and noble line of men who refuse to go to the doctor. Whatever the injury, whatever the illness, the response is always the same. I'm sure I'll be fine. (laughs) My father got COVID at the end of last year, and it was rather serious. And until he actually went to the hospital, all of his children were pretty convinced that he was not going to go to the hospital. And the same blood courses through my veins. Even now, got this or that thing plainly indicating that all is not well. (laughs) That something is wrong physically and my response never wavers. I'm sure it's nothing. It'll clear itself up with time. (laughs) Micah is pleading with God's people to flee to the great physician. He's pleading with them to see that they are not fine. That the illness that they have is not going to clear up naturally. 
He presents them here with an ugly, unapologetically brutal picture of their illness, sin, in its heinousness, in its ugliness, its foulness, its gruesomeness. We know this. If you don't know it now, you will at some point in a Christian life. We barely glimpse the true horror of sin. We've said before, partly this is because the Lord is kind to us. He doesn't let the full-fledged horror of our sins, those corruptions and the works of our hands, which those corruptions produce, he doesn't let that land on our hearts with its full intensity because we would be undone. Because we don't respond to anything in faith. (laughs) And what would the response of faith look like if that dawn of what sin really was came home to the heart? Well, the response of faith would be to flee unto Christ. But we don't flee unto Christ. We try to deal with things on our own, don't we? Micah here is trying to jar their hearts to see the foul work of their hands, the sin that they are blind to. In verses 12 and 13 of chapter 2, Micah presented the glory of the God who gathers And now he turns his attention to the people again. And he presents the horror of hearts that devour. Behold the great shepherd who gathers the lost sheep. Behold your wolfish hearts. Or worse, you felt it, didn't you? Behold your cannibal hearts. He addresses the corrupt rulers of Israel here. And in so doing... He prepares us to yearn for, to crave a different ruler. The excellent ruler that he's going to set forth in this very cycle, the one who's going to come from Bethlehem. This one whom God is going to raise up to shepherd his people. The vision of these rulers in their ugliness. This is ugly, right? I mean, it's ugly. The vision of these rulers in their ugliness creates a yearning for this other ruler and his loveliness, the Lord Jesus Christ, in the beauty of what he has done, what he's going to do. And there's a word for us in that. It's a reminder that all earthly rulers are going to disappoint in some measure, at some point. Whether it's magistrates, pastors and elders, husbands, Wives, fathers, parents, the best rulers in this life will have to earnestly seek forgiveness at some point. That's the best of them. They're going to have to seek forgiveness. (laughs) But there is one who will never harm or wrong, who not only always does what is lovely and good and true, but one whose ways are righteousness and life and peace, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. But in laying bare the heart of the rulers here, he's also inviting us to consider our own hearts of sin because the same flesh courses through us. These are not some ugly others with whom we have nothing in common. (laughs) This is the heart of the flesh. This is sin. 
on display in a unique position and set of circumstances. The heart of sin says unapologetically, others must die so that I, must, so that I may live. That's what your heart says left to itself. That's what my heart says left to itself. Let others die so that I may live. And it's that dreadful heart that we each carry about with us that under the spiritual ministry extended to us in the Lord Jesus Christ, it's the realization that we carry that heart with us that sends us fleeing into the arms of the Savior. Not once, but every single day, all our lives. For with Christ there is pardon and peace and a new spirit that is learning how to say, not how can others die so that I may live, but rather how can others live even if it comes at cost to me? This is another heavy word, is it not? It's not a lot of light in this oracle, but we can still bless God because it's from him. And by the ministry of Christ, it will result in our life. So let's consider this morning. First, sin destroys. Second, sin perverts. Third, sin deceives. And fourth, sin deserves God-forsakenness. So first, sin destroys. The main part of this oracle is a gruesome and repulsive picture. It's human sacrifice. Michael holds up this incredibly dark portrait intended to bring God's people to their senses. To show them the truth of their actions, the truth of their hearts left unto themselves in order to get them to turn from death and unto life. He says, this is the true face of sin. Can't you see it? Look at the second half of verse 2 and the whole of verse 3. You strip their skin off them and their flesh from off their bones. You eat the flesh of my people, and their skin you strip from them. Their bones you break into pieces. You arrange the meat in a pot and as flesh in a cauldron. Now the terrible testimony of Scripture is that at various times Israel did turn to human sacrifice. They practiced human sacrifice. We know that one of the kings who reigned during this period of Micah's ministry practiced human sacrifice. Second Kings 16.3 King Ahaz even sacrificed his son in the fire, imitating the detestable practices of the nations that the Lord had dispossessed before the Israelites. But the charge here that Micah's bringing isn't the literal practice of human sacrifice, as if every leader in the land were daily sacrificing other human beings. No, what he's saying is your arrogant, greedy, and perverse ways are consuming my people. Your sinful hearts are destroying my people in the most gruesome way conceivable, and you don't see it. 
The very people you're supposed to protect, you're devouring and destroying. It's a similar charge that Ezekiel brings in Ezekiel 34. Woe to the shepherds of Israel who have been feeding themselves. Shouldn't the shepherds feed the flock? You eat the fat, wear the wool, and butcher the fattened animals, but you do not tend the flock. Provide and protect, God commands the rulers. It's so simple. (laughs) It's not at all unclear. All of our stations, all of our abilities have been given to us to provide and protect unto the glory of the great provider and protector. And instead, the flesh cries out what? Exploit and devour. Take and destroy. Get what you can while you can, even if it means other people suffer. That's the heart of the flesh. That's not even the worst part of this picture. The worst part of this picture is the echo of the marriage ceremony in Genesis 2. Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, Adam sang in joy in the garden. And here a dark perversion of that ceremony. Flesh of my flesh consumed. Bone of my bone broken. Even our own poets sing, you only hurt the one you love, the one you shouldn't hurt at all. Who does our sin destroy most frequently? Isn't it those closest to us? My sin doesn't touch the random person on the other side of the world, so to speak. Who does my sin touch? Who does my sin hurt? My wife, my children, my flock. Isn't it the same for you? It's not a nameless, faceless victim of your sin. It's the ones who are closest to us. It's brother and sister in the Lord. Husbands hurting bone of bone, flesh of flesh. Wives hurting bone of bone, flesh of flesh. Parents hurting bone of bone, flesh of flesh. Christians hurting those to whom you are bound by the blood of Jesus Christ because sin destroys. And it's not just that sin destroys. It destroys those whom we owe the greatest debt of love, honor, and care. And isn't that most plainly on display in the cross of Jesus Christ? Now those under the care of these exploiting leaders were sheep. That's true. But they weren't the spotless lamb. The one without blemish. The one who only ever did what was right. And what did our sin do to him? What did our betrayal do to him? It destroyed him. To our great shame, we crucified the lamb of God the whip flaying his skin. 
nail and spear piercing his flesh. Micah uses a dark picture to get us to come to terms with our sin. But the cross is darker still, as it was our sin that held him there upon that cross. My sin, your sin, not in the abstract, but in the concrete. How terrible sin is. It doesn't just destroy, it also perverts, which is our second consideration. Sin does not just destroy others, it destroys the self. (laughs) Or rather, it contorts and perverts the self, taking the moral sensibilities that we were made to have and turning them into moral perversities. We've talked about Madeline before, the children. We know Miss Clavel. Miss Clavel's darling school children, what did they do? They smiled at the good and they frowned at the bad. Micah tells us that sin flips that world on its head and leads us to smile at the bad and frown at the good. Look at verse 1 in the first half of verse 2. And I said, Hear now, you heads of Jacob and you leaders of the house of Israel. Does it not fall to you to know justice? O you who hate good and love evil. You can hear Genesis 2 again, right? No. Good. Evil. God created man not just to do what was right, but to love what was right. And to hate what was evil. Why? Because that truly reflects God. God, who only loves what is good and praiseworthy and true. God, who is light, in whom there is no darkness, no, none at all. We can just barely, barely understand such a one. We're his image and his likeness. This is what we were made to do, to love the good, to hate the evil. But look at our perverse moral sensibilities now. Look what we've become under sin's terrible influence. Isaiah says essentially the same thing in Isaiah 5.20. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. We hear this and what do we think? We think, ah, yes, this describes the world, doesn't it? This describes our culture. A culture that celebrates the death of the unborn, celebrates sexual sin, celebrates the carving up of bodies. How perverse things have become. Fair enough. The world of man is perverse. That's partly what Mike is saying. And it does fall upon the church to to discern the culture of Babylon so that we may live rightly as citizens of heaven. But Micah and Isaiah are addressing the church. This isn't a word for other outsiders. This is a word for God's people and their sinful tendencies. We have this in us even as the church. Where do we call evil good and good evil? How about when we justify our sinful actions because they're in response to the sinful actions of others? I get angry with my wife because she deserves it. She provoked me. 
I disrespect my husband because he's not respectable. He's lazy. I look at porn because my wife doesn't satisfy me. I cause division in the household of God because I'm right and they're wrong. My sinful response is justified because it's the right response to your sin. Isn't that calling evil good? Isn't that a regular practice in the household of God and our hearts? We're not immune to this. Sin is never right or good, full stop. That's true even if it's in response to sin. We're not immune. We carry this heart in us, and that's what he's laboring to get us to see. Or how about when someone confronts you in your sin? And you turn on that person like they're an enemy. Isn't that the flesh's response to the conviction over sin? This embarrassingly even happens to me when I'm reading a book and the Lord convicts me of sin. I throw the book down. How dare you, book? (laughs) Who do you think you are, book? (laughs) We rise up in indignation. God's grace of convicting. uses instruments, yes, but it's the good grace of God that would convict us of our sin. But isn't the resistance of it calling good evil? You got it, John? All right. (laughs) That was right at the climax. (laughs) The point was, when we're convicted over sin, it's terribly uncomfortable. It's good. And our indignation indicates that we're willing to call a good evil because it's hard. Sin perverts. It leads us to see the world wrongly. And closely related, sin deceives. It doesn't just pervert our moral sensibilities. It can blind us to our true standing before God. Look at verse 4. Then they will cry to Yahweh. Who? the ones who are facilitating this cannibal feast, the ones who are offering this foul and perverse sacrifice. Notice this. It doesn't say, then they will call to God, the generic name for the deity. Then they will call to Yahweh, the covenant name of God, those who know Moses, Those who know what happened at the Red Sea. Those who know what happened in the wilderness and those 40 years of being sustained. Those who know what happened in the conquest when God, by his grace, displaced one people and placed another people. Those who know David and the covenant that he made with his household. They call upon the name of the Lord, smeared in the blood of of their fellow man. Sin deceives. How could they presume in the face of such an egregious wrong to call upon the name of the Lord? I remember in college, there was this one time I went to a nice restaurant and they turned me away because I was wearing sandals. 
I was indignant. How dare they hold me to the standards that were publicly known and universally applied to all? How dare they not bow to the standard that I myself was in whatever condition I went about in? This is not God's people calling upon the name of the Lord as sinners seeking mercy. This is God's people arrogantly refusing to acknowledge that they are sinners and insisting that God bow to their perverse wills. Israel knew how they were supposed to approach God. Psalm 15, David asks, Who can dwell on your holy to his neighbor, in whose eyes the vile is despised, who does not take a bribe against the innocent, the opposite of what they were doing. That's who approaches the Lord. How many are deceived and lost in these days due to sin, saying, on the whole, I'm pretty good. I'm sure God will accept me. On the whole, I'm better than the next guy. I'm sure. God will welcome me. In an absolute sense, we are utterly deceived if we think that we can approach God based upon our own works. We are utterly deceived if we think we can approach God through any other way than the Lord Jesus Christ. How do we have access to God? Paul tells us plainly, Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained by faith access into this grace in which we stand. Which is the same thing that Jesus himself says when he says, I am the way. No one comes to the Father except through me. Beware the deceitfulness of sin that would think that we can approach God through any other way. Because our approach unto God is by grace, through faith. There is another sense in which our drawing near unto God is hindered if we are actively harboring sin against one another. That's what Peter suggests in 1 Peter 3, verse 7. Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. I understand that to be essentially the same thing that we're praying in the fifth petition of the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Both teach the same thing. Our relationship with each other relatively affects our drawing near unto the Lord because it is a drawing near in grace. In humility, becomes remarkably difficult to rise up in arrogance towards another and then confess that you're drawing near 
in lowliness unto God most high. I experienced this, unfortunately, from time to time in my own calling as a minister. It's hard to have a fight with your wife when you're on your way out the door to go commune with God. Have an argument with bone of bone and flesh of flesh. Be like, all right, I'm out of here. I'm going to draw near in prayer. (laughs) Your soul is disordered. (laughs) There's resentment towards the one who has the greatest claim upon my love, upon my service. And to persist in that tension, to ignore that this one's got to be right. Leave your sacrifice. Go be reconciled. To ignore that this one's got to be right and to presume to draw near here imperils the soul. It imperils the soul. And a habitual existence in that bipolarity of soul is very dangerous. It's what leads to Christians being able to lead double lives, practicing one type of cruelty, insensitivity towards God's word over here without even blinking, turning and coming to the table over here. We're not immune from this. Just because we've been justified doesn't mean that somehow the devastating effects of sin will never touch us. The heart that rightly hears God's word, hears the word that says sin is still dangerous, little children. And you are still vulnerable, little children. Flee from it unto Christ, whom I have set forth as a shepherd for lost and vulnerable sheep. And we can consider last, sin deserves God-forsakenness. What does all sin deserve? What is every single sin deserve. Another area where our ability to see rightly has been compromised. We think, well, do, do little sins deserve? Like, like, like white lies? What about like white lies? Like what if, like, what if they're like well-meaning lies? Like, I mean, it was just a little anger. It didn't even exist long in it. I got it together pretty quick. Paul says it's plain. Paul says it's absolutely plain. The one who does not keep everything written in this book deserves curse. My sin, your sin, our sin deserves God's curse from the least to the greatest. That's what Micah says here. It says it deserves silence. Or more specifically, God turning away in judgment. That's how verse 4 closes. Then they will call out to Yahweh, but he will not answer them. Indeed, he will hide his face from them at that time, just as their deeds have done evil. To those whom others came for mercy and who received only cruel exploitation in their time of need, God says, okay, and that's what I will give you. That's the picture. These are rulers. These are the ones whom God appointed for the people to go to, to make things right. 
I've been wrong. Things are wrong. You make them right. Fix these things. And instead, God's people says, you're vulnerable, and I'm going to gain from your misfortune. You come to me looking for help, and I work destruction for you. So God says, okay, you're going to come to me looking for help when they cry out unto Yahweh. He's going to give them over to the world that they've made. He's going to say, fine, reap what you've sowed. Enjoy the destruction that your deeds have worked in this world. God is just. And here the terrible picture of God's justice is him giving his people over to the world that they have made with their sin. This continues to be true. All sin deserves judgment. That's still true. The wonder is that God doesn't execute it on a world that persists in sin. He doesn't bring it to pass in full upon his children who wrong-headedly continue to persist in in sin. Instead, what has he done? Instead, what does he do? He sets forth the Lord Jesus Christ. The heavy word here is still a word of light. It's a word of light that exposes our darkness. But it prepares us to receive the king that God has set forth as his answer to our darkness. Our sin is such that we do deserve to be forsaken. But God in grace set forth the Lord Jesus Christ who was forsaken so that children could be established in their Father's unwavering favor. If sin deceives concerning our standing before God, Jesus Christ truly communicates our standing before God as those who have received His righteousness by faith, who have received acceptance and welcome because His life was blameless, His life was spotless, and this He has done for the salvation of His people such that we are now heard, not because our prayers are perfect, but because Jesus Christ is perfect. Our sin perverts our appetite, leading us to call evil good and good evil. Jesus Christ has given us a new appetite, a hunger and a thirst for righteousness, which he alone can satisfy in and by himself. And if our sin devours others in greed and arrogance, Jesus Christ gives himself as true food, and true drink. As week in and week out, we come to this table humbled by our sin and sustained in his superabounding grace extended unto sinners. As he teaches us to feast upon our heavenly portion and leave off devouring one another as if our portion were in this world. God's word sheds unapologetic light upon the horror of our sin. But it does so so that the light of his glorious grace may appear more glorious still. 
May he give us all the eyes to see. Let's pray. Father, sustain us under a humbling word. Keep us from hearing it on behalf of others. Help us to sit under the plain testimony of Scripture that this is our hearts, that it's true of us from the least unto the greatest, and that the hope that we have is not in downplaying the truth of this, but in magnifying the wonder of the Lord Jesus Christ, who knows this of us and gave his life in our stead. We pray, Father, that you would help us to glimpse a little bit clearer the truth of sin, that we may be sent fleeing away from it into the arms of Christ. We ask that you would do these things for the sake of our Lord, in whose name we pray, amen.